I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... in front of an audience at the green space at WNYC in New York City. It's Livewire with journalists Chris Hayes, author Jonathan Safran Foer, comedian Michelle Buteau, music from Katya Bonet, and our fabulous house band. And now, the host of Livewire. He is where he is, and we're just going to have to get used to it. Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason. Thank you to everybody for coming out here to the green space at WNYC in New York City. We have a phenomenal show in store for you. Our theme this episode is Here We Are, because this is a huge thing for us to be able to do the show here in New York. Let's have that guy removed. That was a little too New York for our tastes. This is a huge deal for us to be here, but it's also been a little bit of a learning experience because our show is usually recorded in Portland, Oregon. And it's a real different world out here, if you didn't know that. There is a lot of stuff happening in New York that we don't deal with on a day-to-day basis in Portland. One, the noise level. Just the traffic the people yelling at each other on the street who are not even mad at each other. They're just yelling (laughs) as a love language. (laughs) Nobody yells like that in Portland unless you have thrown the wrong compostable in the wrong (laughs) container at a Whole Foods Market deli. They will scream at you if you do that. The smells of New York are really unlike anywhere else I've been. Um, you, can be, you can be walking down a street in New York minding your own business and a smell will just drop you to your knees <laughs> and you don't even know where it came from. Like which huge pile of garbage was it from the subway heat vent? Was it me? You don't know. We don't deal with those kinds of smells in Portland unless someone in our friend group has decided to start making their own deodorant. 
which is a more frequent thing than you might know. And then we do get kind of funky out there, kind of pungent. But to be here at WNYC, which is one of the great public radio stations in America, is a huge honor for us. The, um, the last time I was here at this radio station, it was uh, about four years ago. And I was filling in as the host of a really cool show that WNYC produces, which is called The Takeaway. And uh, WNYC had put me up in a hotel that is, no joke, across the street from where we're all standing right now. And it was a great place, really sort of cute, nice staff, and, and I was enjoying being there. I was uh, doing the show one day here at the radio station, and I noticed that of the maybe like seven or eight female staffers on the show, like six of them were pregnant at the same time, which just seemed like a large percentage of your staff to be pregnant at the same time. So I kind of had that in my head. I was going back to the hotel, and I go into the lobby of the hotel, and I realize that the woman working behind the front desk is also pregnant. She has on, like, a Empire Waist dress, and I can see her, um, like, fundus, which is the real name, if you didn't know, for the pregnancy belly. So I can see that she's pregnant, and I say to her, because I was thinking about the staff at, at WNYC, I go, you know... Everybody is pregnant right now. And right when I say that, I realize that I have made a terrible mistake. Because the woman looks at me, and she sucks her stomach in, which is not a fundus, but just a stomach that looked like she was pregnant. And she says to me, oh, did you think I was pregnant? And this was one of those, like, forks in the road of life, where you can go down one road, which is to basically say, yeah, sorry, I just was confused. Or you can go down another road, which is to try to somehow explain your way out of it. And I went with the second road. <laughs> but I didn't think of a very good explanation. I just said, oh, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> which was a tough sell because we were the only people in the hotel lobby. <laughs> And what I realized about myself in that moment is that I would rather someone think that I am a lunatic <laughs> who walks into empty hotel lobbies and says, apropos of nothing, everybody's pregnant right now. I would rather that be how someone perceived me than to know that I had just made a mistake. So I guess the reason I'm telling you that right here at this part of the show is really for a practical reason, which is if there is anybody in this room here who is pregnant, and I don't know how far along you might be, but if you were to go into labor early and you need someone to help, I am not your guy. <laughs> because I now have a personal policy that no matter what is happening to a woman who's pregnant, I will not make a mention of it. You could have a baby halfway out of your body, and I will not... Even I will not break eye contact with you. <laughs> so now that we have that out of the way, let's get our first guest out here. <laughs> Outside of a borderline troubling obsession with the Chicago Cubs, you could not get a more New York person than our next guest. Chris Hayes was born and raised in the Bronx, the child of a community organizer and a teacher. He attended Hunter College High School and went on to write for the New Republic and other places before MSNBC took a shine to him. 
leading to his current gig hosting the nightly TV program All In with Chris Hayes. His books include Twilight of the Elites and the soon-to-be-released A Colony in a Nation. Please welcome my friend Chris Hayes to Livewire. Chris, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. What's up, New York? Uh, you are such a, I think, typically measured person when you are on social media, in particular Twitter. Um, I know that you don't get mad very often, or, or maybe you do, but you just delete the tweets quickly. I feel like you're a, you're, a, you're a pretty peaceful guy on Twitter, particularly considering your job. The only time I've seen you really get mad is related to baseball. Like, you recently just wrote a tweet... The Cubs are playing like garbage. <laughs> and that was a game they won yeah. eventually. Why does baseball do that know, to you? Because baseball is such a frustrating sport. I mean, the thing about baseball that's different than I, – I love basketball too. I'm a huge basketball fan. Basketball, there are times where people are making bad decisions or they're not uh, putting in effort. And you can sort of judge the player. You can you, there's there's shots that don't fall, but there's also there are moments in a basketball game where you say you shouldn't have taken that shot. That was a bad decision, or you are you are putting in insufficient effort. It's not really that way in baseball. Like when someone comes up, everybody's trying to get a hit. Right. Like no one's just like, oh, I don't care. <laughs> so there's something about just the impossibility of it that's so frustrating. When it, particularly when a team's not hitting or when a pitcher's getting rocked, it's like. You don't know what to do with your anger because you can't actually put it on the players because every single pitcher is trying to throw strikes and not get hit. Every batter is trying to hit the ball. I put and it when directly it doesn't on happen, the players. I put it directly on the players. <laughs> I really do. I, t for a while, had this terrible rage. habit of, of taking their head sh official team headshot and just posting it into Twitter and then just writing, great job. <laughs> I mean... You're at least trying to keep the larger picture in mind. I'm just 100% ad hominem. Like, you are a horrible human being. Yes. Yeah. And then I get up the next morning and I delete all of those tweets. <laughs> this, is, this is real. Okay, so social media in general for you has to be a somewhat complicated place because you do a nightly, uh, largely politically driven television program, and you are just every night making some part of the American population furious with you just based on yep. doing your show. So how do you navigate that? How do you not constantly get like pulled into fights with trolls? I, um, I think I've gotten better over time. I think um, there's a few things. One, there was a period of time, particularly when the show launched, where the the level of feedback was so immense. When, when the primetime show launched, I had a show on the weekend mornings, and then we started hosting the show on the weekend uh, weekday nights. And, you know... <laughs> Being a television host uh, or, or, or having a certain level of public recognition, you know, there's this great episode of The Simpsons in which uh, Bart Simpson becomes a protege of uh, mobsters and uh, he, they hijack a cigarette truck um, and, and the cigarettes get stored in Bart's room. And Homer comes in and he says to Bart, have you started smoking? And Bart says, no, I'm just storing these. He goes, I'm going to sit here and make you smoke every one of these cigarettes. That's like an old joke, right? Like, that's the way you get someone. And so, to me, social media and TV is kind of like, oh, you want people to like you? Oh, really? Well, now you're going to smoke every one of these cigarettes. Right. It's like, is that what you like? Oh, you want that little ding of recognition, that little drop of serotonin when someone says, like, good job, buddy? Like, oh, get ready for it. And so, there's some level at which you have to, like, close that. You have to close yourself off to it. Because if you begin to totally constitute yourself by that, feedback you will it's just a it's a pathway to misery 
Uh, we have Chris Hayes here from All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. This is Livewire Radio. I'm wondering, uh, who gets more mad at you online? Is it the political right who thinks you are a propagandist for Hillary Clinton, or is it the political left who thinks you're a propagandist for Hillary Clinton? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we get a lot of both of that, actually. I mean, it was, it was, I would say the gnarliest period was the, was the primary. Um, because, um, you know, there's something about being attacked by people that you generally agree with that stings more. Um, just as a general rule, I think, in life, right? Um, I think, you know, particularly I think if you consider yourself broadly on the left or liberal um, this idea that like you're a sellout or you're or you've sort of given up on your values like is extremely existentially cutting, and a lot of politics among the left gets phrased that way. Um, it, there, there's this sort of idea of kind of authenticity or purity or um, uh, trueness to some set of values that you either have stayed on the path of or fall, fallen away from. And so everything I felt like during the primary season particularly was phrased in those terms, and it was really intense. I mean, we were sort of as a kind of editorial con uh, position, we were neutral in that primary. We, you know, we cover both sides. People identify MSNBC with generally being a progressive station. So you're, you yeah, know. Yeah, the primetime line. Right. Yeah. So, you, so you guys were sort of neutral on Hillary versus Sanders. Yeah, we're, we were just getting it all the time from both sides. But then the other thing you don't want to do is you don't want to, f you know, I was saying before about sort of shutting off you know, you can go too far, right? So there's some level at which, like, you can you have to shut off from a certain amount of criticism and feedback or you'll go crazy. But there's another part where if you do too much of that, like, th people say things that are right sometimes and check you in ways that is important. So it's hard to constantly be trying to find that correct point of what criticism do I let in that's on the m money and what do I block out because it's not. But in the primary, you know, I was open to a lot of it because um, it was coming from people that I generally respected. Um, which made it harder because I felt like I had to deal with every little bit of criticism of our coverage and constantly be checking myself. Do you ever find yourself in that weird kind of feedback loop where you're, you check your work email and then you check Facebook and then you check Twitter? And oh, then by oh that you mean time... my life? <laughs> oh, yes, that. Yeah, occasionally I interrupt that part. Of... <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's... Um... I was just actually listening to Tim Wu uh, on, on the way over here who's got a new great new book about attention and... Um, you know, it's uh, we're all addicts. Um, we're all stimulus addicts in, in some ways, and particularly having that little phone there. Um, it's yeah, I, I, I'm pretty bad about it, and it's something I'd like to change. I mean, part of it is for my job; it's sort of necessary, and so there's always a sense of like, well, I have to check Twitter because maybe something terrible happened. And we're going to get called in the office or something. But in some ways, that's an excuse because I'm just checking my phone. We're going to take a short break here on Livewire Radio. We have Chris Hayes here from MSNBC. Chris, try not to check your phone during the next 30 seconds. Back in just a moment. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot. You hear me talking about Ergo Depot every week on the show, and that's because they are advocates of active living and also because they are makers of the Jarvis, which, as my mom would say, hello, is the actual desk I use when we are making the Livewire radio show. Why do I love it so much? Well, one, it's actually aesthetically very pleasing. Also, it's super functional. It goes up, it goes down, it goes to the middle. You can preset different heights. So if you like to kind of stand in the morning, but maybe you wanna sit down towards the afternoon, you just tell it, hey Jarvis, it's afternoon. Go to your afternoon position super duper easy to use and really will make your life at your place of work 
so much less sedentary. We get this idea that just because we're going to our quote-unquote real job, we have to just hunker down in a chair for some unknown amount of hours. With the equipment that Ergo Depot makes and sells, you can sit, you can stand, you can lean, you can stretch, you can even walk. And the Jarvis desk is going to help set you free at work. So to find out more, go to ergodepot.com. Welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you from the green space at WNYC in New York this week. I, I just, just to report on that, I literally, unironically, as soon as you put the microphone down, had the impulse of my hand going to my phone. Oh, like not, even as a, not to make a joke. I was just like, oh, I got 30 seconds here. I can just That's Chris Hayes, if you just joined us, who clearly has a problem with... <laughs> Checking his phone a lot. Uh, Chris from the All In with Chris Hayes TV show on MSNBC. I'm wondering, you have a new book coming out soon. It's called A Colony in a Nation. And what, what is the book about exactly? Yeah, it's not, it'll be out in March from Norton. So it's a few months out, but it's a book about uh, policing and democracy. Uh, and I assume you find it's going great. It's all good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the line is actually a line from Richard Nixon's 1968 uh, RNC acceptance speech in Miami. He sort of goes on this riff and he says, you know, black Americans, they want the same rights as everyone else. They don't want to just be a colony and a nation. And I thought, well, that's sort of what we've created in certain ways. Um, and so the, the book is sort of a um, it's uses the reporting that I've been doing over the last few years on criminal justice and in Ferguson and Baltimore and Chicago and other places like that. And then some of my firsthand accounts of, of living here in New York City, growing up in New York City uh, at the time when, you know, there were 23 or 2400 murders a year. There's 350 now and there were. Um, literally six times as many assaults. So experiencing New York sort of during the great crime wave and then the great crime waves were um, recession and trying to sort of make sense of how we have constituted this system that we have that is so uh, destructive in so many ways. Because I think the way that we think about policing is we think about it as a thing that they do, the police, the problems of police. But policing is a democratic function. So we made the system, we, all of us citizens, and it's an attempt to sort of think through what the cultural and psychological basis for that system that we all created is. On a more kind of uh, prosaic level, how do you find time to write a book? You have two kids. You host a daily television program. Like, what hours of the day are you writing about the state of policing in this country? So um, – I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, you know, drop my daughter off at, at pre-K. Uh, we, we have a caretaker for our son. And then – and my wife, you know, is – she works full-time. She's a, a law professor and she does Supreme Court stuff for ABC. And so she's extremely busy but also uh, has been amazingly uh, flexible um, and and done a lot to make it possible for me to write the book. Um, basically – She's not going to hear this. It's not yeah. on New York. <laughs> Uh, you don't have to be that worried. <laughs> no, 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 but it's true. It's also, it, I mean, it's true. But I, I, I should just be clear, like, well, how did you do this? Well, I have a partner who sort of facilitated doing it. But basically write from 9 to 12 every day. Um, so just, like, discipline, make sure you get those three hours in. Um, and then during that time, be checking emails <laughs> with editor, with my producers, start getting a rundown, then do the editorial call, and then do the show. Wow. I, I'm amazed you have that discipline, though, because there must be mornings when you don't feel like doing that and you just go for it. Yeah, it's it was it was the most it's the hardest I've ever worked, I would say, the last 10 months of my life. Wow. Uh, Chris Hayes is here. Uh, the book that we're talking about is A Colony in a Nation, which is going to be coming out in a few months. He's also the host of uh, All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. Um, 
Would it be an accurate statement to say that we have never had a presidential election like the one that we are currently experiencing? Totally accurate. I mean, I, it, it's funny because this, you see this adjective unprecedented all the time. And there's lots of times where when people reach for the when people reach for the word unprecedented, I think it's a good it's always a good instinct to say, like, really? History's long. Right. <laughs> uh, and and so there's a lot of ways in which, like, I'm always skeptical of that word. But one way to think about this campaign that I think really gets lost because of what a singular figure Donald Trump is as a personality is just from a resume perspective, right? No major party has nominated someone without any public service experience since Wendell Wilkie in 1940, who was sort of a fluke, who was nominated, I think, on the 12th ballot, essentially saved the Republican Party from um, sort of sort of uh, fascist collaboration. <laughs> uh, you know, there was a big fight in that Republican Party about whether we were going to oppose the Nazis or not. They, they, Wilkie uh, opposed the Nazis. Point being, Wendell Wilkie was a weird, fluky person. That's the only time that a major party has nominated someone like that. There have been, uh, I believe, three U.S. presidents who uh, whose only public service experience was in the military. Well, you're not counting Trump stakes as a public service. <laughs> That's exactly right. Which is the flaw in your logic. So those are incredible, incredible stakes. So, <laughs> Stuart Stevens, who was the sort of chief strategist for Mitt Romney and who just could not hate Donald Trump anymore and spends all day on Twitter <laughs> trolling the Trump campaign, once said something like, what kind of person couldn't manage to make money selling steaks, vodka, football, and gambling to Americans? Right? <laughs> well, not to <clears throat> show so, my colors, but I'm hoping that won't, that won't be the most unsuccessful thing that he does. All right, we're talking to Chris Hayes from MSNBC here on Livewire this week, and our theme is Here We Are, but there are some other people who are here with us that we would be remiss if we did not bring up on stage. Can we get Chris's actual parents, Jerry and Roger Hayes, to the stage, please? Wow. Is this, this is your Hi life? There. Come right this way, please. Jerry, if we could have you stand over here, and Roger right here. Hi there, nice to meet you. All right, we know... Jerry and Roger, that you obviously love your son, Chris. But we also know that one of you probably loves him a little bit more. <laughs> and we figured that we would get to the bottom of, of who loves him the most by having you guys take part in a little quiz about Chris's career. We want to see who's been paying closer attention oh and therefore who loves him the most. It's a quiz that we're calling Who Loves You, Chris Hayes. you Chris Hayes baby who knows the most about your work all right here's how this will work I'm gonna ask a question whichever one of you thinks you know the answer you can ding this bell <laughs> right here and uh, at the end we'll know who loves Chris Hayes more what if neither one of us knows it well <laughs> that's I'm gonna not concerned about that <laughs> It's going to be a sad, sad Christmas at the Hayes household. Shade. Chris, how do you feel about this? Mortified. Okay. Please then, continue. Then it's, it's Please. already working. Please proceed, Governor. All right. Who loves Chris Hayes more? Question number one. What is the name of the show that immediately precedes Chris's show on MSNBC? Roger. Hardball with Chris Matthews. That is absolutely right. Yeah. 
So I'm putting down one for Roger and zero for Jerry. All right. Next question. Chris's mom is getting into an athletic stance. She is getting closer to the bell. She is feeling very confident about knowing the next question and thereby establishing her love for her son. Who did Chris interview on the first episode of his first show, Up with Chris Hayes? Ding, ding the bell. It's a woman. Okay. Yes. She's a political. Uh, Nancy. Yes. Pelosi. That is absolutely right. I did not remember that. <laughs> nice job, Jerry. One to one. You did not remember that, Chris. I would not have been able to answer that. <laughs> oh, we know who doesn't love Chris Hayes. It's Chris Hayes. Next question for. MSNBC's Chris Hayes' actual parents here with us at WNYC in New York City. What is the name of Chris's forthcoming book? This one's really just about listening. Jerry. A Colony in a Nation. Absolutely right. Now, I, I did say the name of the book about four times during the preceding chat. I have noticed, by the way, that you have thrown a couple of fairly vicious elbows at your husband. That's how we have such a good, long marriage. Oh, really? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, if you're scoring at home, it's uh, Jerry 2, Roger 1, on Who Loves Chris Hayes More. Um, here is another question for you. In fact, it is our final question, so this is for all the marbles. Name any guest from Chris's show last night. We have book club They have book club. Night. Friday nights. <laughs> Book club on Friday nights. And usually, you, he's usually on at 11 again, which we do watch, but not, not this yeah. uh, season. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's our excuse. All right. You know what? I'm going to call this a tie. I'm going to say they both love their son, Chris Hayes. That's how you play Who Loves Chris Hayes. Who loves you, Chris Hayes, baby? Who knows the most about your work? Jerry and Roger Hayes. Thank you. And also, Chris Hayes from All In with Chris Hayes. Thank you so much, man. Go Cubbies. This week's show is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. October is non-GMO month, and Whole Foods is celebrating the way they do every month by offering more than 25,000 organic and 8,500 non-GMO products. Because what makes sense in October makes sense the rest of the year, too. WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Livewire Radio. We are coming to you from New York City this week. Our theme is Here We Are, because we're very excited to be here in the Big Apple. We wanted to ask the crowd here at the Green Space at WNYC, what's the most New York thing they'd ever witnessed? And uh, they've given us their replies. Uh, Donna, who's here with us, says the most New York thing she's ever witnessed is that when someone asked a cab driver for a bite of his hot dog. <laughs> There's a lot of faith in that cab driver's hygiene. Uh, Brianna said the most New York thing she's ever seen was a small dog being pushed in a stroller on the Upper East Side by a nanny in uniform. The dog was fully dressed. <laughs> it's very Upper East Side. And Pam uh, says the most New York thing that she ever witnessed or experienced uh, was that uh, she called the police to report a shooting outside of their apartment, and the dispatcher said, quote, well, no one made you live there. <laughs> All right, 
Our theme this week is Here We Are, because we are coming to you from the green space at WNYC in New York. And like most New Yorkers, our next guest is originally from New Jersey. You've seen her on Last Comic Standing, Best Week Ever, and Key and Peel. Please welcome the friggin' hilarious Michelle Buteau to Livewire. I just got married. Um, it's cool. It's cool. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I got married six years ago, but we're still paying for the wedding, so it feels new. It do. It feels new. It's expensive. My husband's so cute. He's white. I like him anyways. Um, he doesn't rap. He doesn't wear a fedora. He stays in his lane. He's European, so he's like vintage white. Okay, yes. It's the real idea. Mm, 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 mm. <clears throat> he's from Holland, which is also the Netherlands. I just found that out. Um, <laughs> pick a name. I don't have time. I love going to Holland. Oh my God, it's so charming. I feel exotic. I just like walk down the street with like big hair and big boobs and freckles and everyone's like, it's friendly, let's talk to it. <laughs> How bad could it be? I mean, I do feel exotic, I feel so exotic. Like I walk down the street and everyone's like, oh my God, who's fat Beyonce? I'm like, shut up! <laughs> just like neck rolling and squatting everywhere. Wait, do you guys know who Beyonce is? Did her mom make the cover of AARP? I don't know. Oh, damn! It's so weird though, like, going to Holland because it's such an old country, they don't know what sounds inappropriate or slightly racial, to me at least. Like every night when my man and I go to, um, to bed, he always says the same stuff. He's like, baby, are you ready to go to the master's bedroom? I'm like, okay. Okay. what I tell you about that? Oh, I'm black, by the way. Hey, everybody. I was um, eating dinner at my father-in-law's house one time in the Netherlands because I don't miss any meals. Okay. And he was like, Michelle, I want you to try my favorite desserts. I was like, father-in-law, I love desserts. Let's do this. We are bonding. Then he busted out this marshmallow with a graham cracker and it covered in milk chocolate. I was like, this is hashtag basic, bitch. Don't get me all worked up. I thought we were gonna like have like a crumble whatever and now I got a marshmallow? And he was like, no, you must try these. These are called negazunin. I was like, what'd you say for? He was like, yeah, negazunin translates to Negro kisses and they are delicious. I was like, wow. I was like, hmm, hear what father-in-law. Um, Yes, you are right. Negro kisses are delicious. Ow. But when you come visit us in Best Eye, Brooklyn, you need to call this s'mores. I cannot call Al Sharpton over some s'mores, okay? I'm not making any of this stuff up. My brother-in-law in the Netherlands, his name is Kuhn. 
You can laugh at it. I have back fat, okay? Things could be worse. His name is Kuhn, spelled C-O-E-N. It's a popular name. Who knew? I didn't. And my husband and I got married in July in Miami because it's 40% cheaper to get married to a hurricane season. <laughs> I love a refund. And I, I was running errands and I brought Kuhn with me. And I went to a Walmart and he just like, ran away. The minute he stepped in the Walmart, he got like a boner. He was like, so many ketchups! And like ran away. I was like, where are you going? He's like, mayonnaise! And I was like, what's happening? Well, my point is, does anyone know how hard it is to lose your brother-in-law named Coon at a Walmart in South Florida? It is hard. I was just like gently jogging down each aisle. I was like, I felt like a racist ventriloquist. All right, thank you, everybody. That's my time. That's Michelle Bouteau. This is Livewire Radio. This week's show is brought to you by New Belgium Brewing and their new seasonal ale, Pump Kick. This pumpkin seasonal gets a kick from cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, clove, and cranberry for an ale that pairs well with everything this time of year has to offer. More info at newbelgium.com. Hey, if you're going to be in the Chicago area on December 2nd, join us at Lincoln Hall. We've got musician and comedian Reggie Watts there with us. Then on December 9th, we're going to be in Seattle with author Maria Semple and Misha Collins from the TV show Supernatural. More information and tickets available at livewireradio.org. All right, we are here in New York City this week, and we've asked the audience here at the Green Space at WNYC what the most New York thing they've ever witnessed or experienced is. Uh, we've been reading through them throughout the show. Uh, Ted said the most New York thing he'd ever experienced, a vendor selling DVDs of their wedding ceremony. <laughs> I've watched that DVD. It's not bad. Um, this person didn't use a name, maybe out of shame. They said the most New York thing they've experienced, renting a couch in Fort Greene for over $2,000 a month. And uh, Eddie said the most New York thing that they'd ever witnessed. Uh, they took a cab one block to avoid pizza getting wet from the rain. That's <laughs> highly New York. All right. Our theme this week is Here We Are. And we won't lie, that theme was somewhat inspired by the title of our next guest's latest book, which is Here I Am. And by somewhat inspired, I mean that's why we picked this week's theme. Jonathan Safran Foer's first book, Everything is Illuminated, won roughly one million literary awards, was adapted into a film, and got him a ton of notice. His follow-ups, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and Eating Animals, made it clear that he was here to stay as an important literary figure. He's one year younger than I am, but I'm not letting that get to me. Please welcome Jonathan Safran Foer to Livewire.
Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for uh, coming down here to uh, WNYC to be a part of this. Um, uh, can you lay out some of the characters in your new book and what they're going through in Here I Am? So it all takes place in D.C., where I grew up. And um, a <laughs> big D.C. contingent tonight, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, it follows one family, the Block family, mostly husband and wife, Jacob and Julia, who are in the early 40s. Jacob was an aspiring writer. It's not really clear what kind, but he ended up working for a TV show that's enormously popular that he doesn't really care very much about. His wife, Julia, is an architect, and she had ambitions of making museums and war memorials, and now she does kitchen and bathroom renovations. They have three children, uh, 13, 10, and 6, a father, a grandfather, multiple generations. And it book kind of follows them, this family, through two crises, one of which is a discovered cell phone, which has evidence of an affair, pretty explicit evidence of an affair, and uh, an earthquake in the Middle East, which precipitates a war that becomes so extreme that the Prime Minister of Israel asks all Jews between the ages of 15 and 55 to go to fight. Would you do that if you were asked? With the, the affair or the war? Well, <laughs> you're free to answer that either way. I was thinking of uh, reporting uh, for duty to uh, Israel. Uh, I think in both cases, it's one of those things you can't really answer until it's about to happen. Uh, actually, the first reading that I did from the book in New York was in Brooklyn. And it was at, it's funny, I say D.C. and everybody claps. I say Brooklyn, there's dead silence. Well, <laughs> we're in Manhattan now. There's maybe a certain <laughs> I, I, Nobody here lives in Manhattan. I would almost bet on it. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so they're self-hating Brooklynites. Yeah. So uh, the first, the first read it was in Brooklyn at a synagogue. So both because it was Brooklyn and because it was in a synagogue, there were an awful lot of Jewish people there. And the interviewer asked the audience the question you just asked me. And some people raised their hands. Yes, I would go fight. Some people kept their hands down. Most people just looked around to see what everybody else was doing. <laughs> and then the interviewer asked me what I thought of the the response. And I said, I don't really think anything about it because this is one of those things where the the way that we have identified ourselves, either because it's how we want to think of ourselves or how we want to be thought of by other people, has maybe nothing to do with who we actually are and how we'd actually behave when called upon. And so I wanted this book to create situations where people were called upon to claim one identity at the expense of another. Yeah, this book uh, really deals with the question of Jewish identity. When you set out to write the book, was that a primary thought in your mind? Like you wanted to write about that topic? Truth be told, I don't, I don't really have primary thoughts in my mind when I write, or even secondary or tertiary thoughts. I write with a kind of openness. You know, I've, I've written, I think, three or four book proposals and sold them to publishers. And only once have I turned in the book that I wrote the proposal for, which was a nonfiction book. Um, when I finished this book and I handed it to some friends, to my brothers, to my editor, a couple of people said to me, man, there's a lot of Jewish stuff in this book. And I was really surprised, really, really surprised. Um, I, I have two boys and we play a lot of word games, trivia games. And the other morning we were down at breakfast and I asked my younger son if he could name five kinds of dinosaur. And he said, oh, yeah, no problem, definitely. You got your Tyrannosaurus Rex, your T-Rex, your Rex, your Tyrannosaurus. And I explained to him that wasn't quite right. And then he said to me, did you ask me that question because there was a dinosaur on the back of my T-shirt, which I hadn't seen that morning. And I told him what I would tell you, which is 
No. But the truth is, I must have seen it at some point. And a lot of my writing is sort of inspired by those like backs of t-shirts, the things that aren't really in the straight field of vision. They're not things that I'm consciously thinking about, but are around me. And then it's only through the process of writing that I see, oh, wow, I, you know, I had thought I was one kind of person observing one kind of thing, living one kind of life. And now I have evidence that something else was going on. We have Jonathan Safran Foer here. His new book is Here I Am. The family that is the sort of main focus of this book, the Block family, the kid Sam is getting ready for a bar mitzvah, which he's somewhat ambivalent about. Did you have a bar mitzvah? I did. I'm just wondering if like, you felt at all leading up to your bar mitzvah the way that the character in the book feels. I did. I mean, I felt a lot of ambivalence. I felt that I saw hypocrisy wherever I looked and inconsistency. I didn't understand why I was being asked to do the things I was being asked to do. But I don't know if that really distinguishes me from other 13-year-olds, you know, um, or if it's in any way a uniquely Jewish experience. I think there are things about the rite of passage and all the emphasis that's put on it and the pressure that's put on it that can stimulate a kind of questioning and a kind of maybe even um, resentment. But ultimately, it was... Um, a kind of transformative experience. It actually, it was one of those things that was as as resisted, but as promised. Did you have a wild party afterwards with a DJ? And I, I had a, a very tame party. I had a band called the Electric Brigade. They were a bunch of uh, military servicemen, actually, who were like, this is how they made money on the side, I guess. And um, we had a tent in my backyard. And... Uh, that's 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 pretty much all I can remember. My passage, the Parsha that week, was the Ten Commandments. So I, I did the Ten Commandments, which is a big one. We had the Electric Brigade, which was a big one. And uh, Did you have any requests for the Electric Brigade? <laughs> In fact, I did. They gave a list of like, I don't know, what, 300 songs that they could play. And it was all stuff that at the time um, seemed deep and important and, and in retrospect was kind of silly. But like, you know, Millie Vanilli, I happen to remember they played a lot of Millie Vanilli. <laughs> yeah. They may have they actually might, they been, been Millie, Millie Vanilli. Vanilli. Right. <laughs> or the people who originally did the music. I that's mean, we right. just can't know. That, that, that's true. <laughs> We've got Jonathan Safran Foer here. His new book is Here I Am. This is Live Wire Radio coming to you from New York City back in a moment. Hey, this Livewire podcast is brought to you by Livewire members. That's right. We've got ourselves a league of extraordinary listeners. And I don't know if you're one of them yet, but you really should be. Uh, these are the kind folks who uh, kick Livewire a couple of bucks every month, and uh, that is a huge part of how we are able to make this show happen. Uh, if you'd like to do a $5 a month recurring donation, we've got some really cool stuff we'll send you as a thank you. Same at the $10 level. Whatever amount of money you think reflects back the entertainment that Livewire, the radio show, and the podcast gives you. So if you want to help us out, go to livewireradio.org and see all the cool stuff that we will send you as a thanks. Welcome back to Livewire Radio, coming to you this week from the green space at WNYC in New York. My name is Luke Burbank. We've got Jonathan Safran Foer here. His new book is Here I Am. Um, how much of this book is for you autobiographical, and do you ever get through an interview where someone doesn't ask you that question? I thought I was just about to. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit like asking how much of this show is autobiographical. You know, mm -hmm. in in some sense, 
It must be strongly. Like you presumably want to talk to certain people. You arrange it in a certain way. It's an expression of your concerns and the way you like things to be. And in that sense, the book was strongly autobiographical and, and more autobiographical than my other books, maybe just because I've been writing longer and I have a better sense of what it is that I like. In the sense of the events in the book corresponding to events in my life, it's not any more than my other books were. Um, I heard you say that you weren't like a real avid reader as a kid. You kind of got to that a little bit late. What, what changed for you? And also, what was an early book that you got really jazzed about? I don't know exactly what changed for me. Um, one of my favorite quotes about writing was um, James Baldwin said, I used to think the things I felt most strongly, um, most alienated me from other people because nobody would be depressed like I'm depressed or happy like I'm happy. And I became an avid reader when I was about maybe, I don't know, a junior in high school, something like that. And that's a time when one feels a lot of like depression and happiness, really extreme emotional swings. And James Baldwin then said, I felt that way until I became a reader and writer. And I realized the things I, f I felt most strongly, most strongly connected me to others, just not the others that I had assumed. And, um, and that was my experience. You know, I felt, as, again, as a lot of young people do, a certain amount of alienation or aloneness or just distance from the world, not knowing where I, where my puzzle piece fit into the rest. And books gave a sense of um, kind of camaraderie. And in terms of early books I read that meant a lot to me, putting aside the things I found behind other books in my parents' attic, like The Joy of Sex and... Uh, <laughs> Our bodies, ourselves. God, I, I studied that like it was Talmud. Yeah, yeah. but that um, was that was probably back in the day when that was still pretty exciting stuff. You couldn't just go on your phone. No, and no, no. it is still exciting stuff. <laughs> that, uh, have you looked at the joy of sex recently? Not, not in the last thirty minutes. Seven hours. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember it at all? I remember it vividly because yeah. uh, I had never. I you know I don't think I'd ever seen that stuff going on. And granted, it's hand-drawn. Well, that is what makes it so unbelievably, mind-blowingly exciting. Um, it's, it, in a way, it's the exact... I know this isn't what I was brought on to talk about, but... It's, what it's you actually, wouldn't believe, it, it's Jonathan, the only is thing. it's exactly... This whole page is just joy of sex uh, analysis. It's, it's the only thing that I'm the world expert on, and I don't mean sex, but I mean the book, The Joy of Sex. Okay. Um, it is like the exact antithesis of contemporary pornography. Because it, it's like, um, maybe there's an analogy in, in Peanuts, you know, the Charles Schultz cartoon. The faces are drawn so minimally, just enough to suggest a human face and a specific character that you can then, like, invest in it whatever you want to. And you can also invest yourself in it. And such is, such is the joy of sex. Like, those drawings give you just, or gave me and probably you, um, <laughs> just enough material to go absolutely spastic mentally. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of hit books, as I was on my way out here, Jonathan, I was passing through a number of different airports, and uh, every bookstore I walked by, there was your new book, Here I Am, prominently displayed, and I wondered what that feels like for you to see that, and if you ever give in the urge to just like nudge one of the Hudson Books employees and go like, that's me. I'll tell you two things. One, this is the difference between being the author of the book and not being the author of the book, because I would describe my experience in airports, which I've been in a lot in the last two months, as looking for my book and never finding it. Um, I'll start texting you when I see it. I wish you would. Because it's everywhere between here and Portland. I wish you would. But 
Um, no, I never nudge a Hudson bookseller, but just last night I was walking around Brooklyn with a friend of mine and we went to a couple of different bars and I gave him a copy of my book and he put it on the bar and three separate times in three separate bars, somebody said, started commenting on the book and like, Hey, do you like that guy? What's it? Not, not recognizing that I was the, the, that guy, you know, oh, did that fill you with anxiety? Extreme anxiety. Yeah. Oh. Extreme anxiety. They, it could have gone horrendously. It went, it went perfectly That's well. like when someone doesn't hang the cell phone up after they've been talking to you. Yeah. We were having a Livewire staff meeting once, and one of the people on the show put their phone in their pocket and didn't know it was still going. And everybody else said, we got to hang up right now. I, w I once butt-dialed from my shrink's office. <gasps> yeah. So that's, that, that's as bad as it gets. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff for the next book from Jonathan Safran Foer. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on thank Livewire, you. man. Thank you. That's Jonathan Safran Foer. His new book is Here I Am. This week's show is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even tropical un-Alaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. <laughs> Alaska Airlines, fly nice. All right, that's just about the end of the show. But before we go, we want to read a couple more audience cards from the folks here at the Green Space at WNYC in New York. Our theme this hour has been... Here we are. We're so excited to be in New York. We wanted to ask the audience here what the most New York thing they've ever witnessed or experienced is. By the way, there's a lot of, these are all animal related, so get ready. Michelle said the most New York thing she's ever witnessed. On my very first morning in Harlem, I saw a rat running around with a weave in its mouth. <laughs> you think the rat's just gonna go out without its weave? It's, Cornelius said the most New York thing that he has ever witnessed. This homeless guy threw up on my mother holding a rat. Problem with this sentence construction is I don't know if it was the homeless guy or Cornelius's mother who was holding the rat. This is why grammar matters. And Jeanette said the most New York thing that she's ever witnessed or experienced. Someone shaming a pug at a wiener dog parade in Washington Square Park. <laughs> our theme this hour is Here We Are. Meanwhile, our musical guest may have just gotten here, and we mean to planet Earth. Her music sounds like it could be from another dimension. Her new album is The Visitor. Please welcome Kadja Bonet to Livewire. <laughs>
without a doubt Before the morning comes I dream a bit of you Honey call And settling with thoughts Will surface like honeydew Drops for me new And I will feel compelled to say Honey That is Kadia Bonet right here on Livewire Radio. If you want to find out more about her new record, go to kbonet.com. That's it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks to our guests, Chris Hayes, Jonathan Safran Foer, Michelle Buteau, and Kadia Bonet. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Alaska Airlines. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of LiveWire. Laura Haddon is our producer, editor, and even wrote for this week's show, along with our announcer, who is Jason Rouse. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director. House sound this week in New York by Gaines Laguerre. Recording engineer was Chase Culpin. And huge thanks to Utsuki Otsuka, Jennifer Sendro, Ricardo Fernandez, and everybody at the Green Space at WNYC for making this show possible. Thanks also to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Kim Bergstrom. Our operations manager is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing manager. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Community Foundation and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. Special thanks this week to member Brian Hart. For more info about our show or to listen to our podcast or do anything else Livewire related, go to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. PRI, Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.